We have been in the book of James for our sermons. We have one more chapter, three more sermons on James. But we're going to set those aside as Easter approaches and change gears a little bit. And then we will get back to finishing James after Easter. Um, Wanted to start uh, thinking through why Easter is important and what happens at Easter. And so today we're going to read two different texts. The first comes to us from Acts chapter 8. And then we will be in Isaiah 53 for most of our sermon. So if you want to just listen to Acts 8 and then turn to Isaiah 53, um, you'll see how they are connected in just a moment. Acts chapter 8 verse 26 goes like this. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was like this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. This is a very important moment in the book of Acts. Up until this point, the the work of the Holy Spirit and everything that Jesus has done has been primarily for the Jews, been almost exclusively for the Jews. But here we have this Ethiopian, this African. He would have had much darker skin. He would have really stood out even in the Middle East because he was from Africa. He was a eunuch in the the, um, hire of the queen, Um, This was very common. You would uh, make your servants eunuchs so that there would be no romantic involvement with the queen. And then you could trust them, uh, supposedly, uh, to be faithful in those times. But for some reason, he is a a worshiper and he is reading the scriptures. And he decides he's going to go to Jerusalem to study. And on his way home, God leads Philip to talk to him. And he's reading from Isaiah 53. Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the the eunuch says, no, unless somebody shows me. Is this this him he's talking about or somebody else? And Philip starts with this passage and uses the passage to start telling him about the good news of Jesus. So we're going to look at that passage. Isaiah chapter 53 
and try to look and see Jesus in it. So I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to turn to Isaiah 53. Before I read that text, a little bit of background is helpful. Isaiah is uh, an interesting book because it really is sort of written in three sections. The, the first section looks like it's written before Israel is taken off into exile. So it's more of a warning. If we don't turn things around, bad things are going to happen. The second section seems to be written in exile. Hey, I told you this was going to happen, but there's hope. And here's we got to understand how we got here so that maybe things can turn around. And then the very end of Isaiah seems to be written after the exile, where they're trying to understand what just happened and trying to avoid it in the future. In fact, these sections are so different in terms of their style and in terms of their content that some people even suggest they're written by three different people. Um, I'm not sure about that. We're not, that's maybe a discussion for another day. But it is important to understand that this passage we're about to read comes from that second section of Isaiah. So it's written really from being in the middle of the exile, trying to understand it. Will God help us? Will God save us? Isaiah writes, um, depending on uh, what section you're in and how you think about the authorship, uh, around 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So, so picture that in your head. 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah pens these words. He's hearing from God, trying to make sense of the brokenness in the world. Why are we in exile? How are we going to get back How will we ever avoid getting to this place again? And so he writes. We are in Isaiah 53, and I'm starting in verse 1, and I'm just going to read the first couple verses here. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah is looking at the problem, and he says there's only one way that that this is going to get fixed. God is going to have to intervene. God is going to have to do something. In fact, it's very interesting to think about this passage that Isaiah writes it in the past tense. So he's writing 700 years before the birth of Jesus and he's writing it as if it's already happened in his prophecy. The image is that of the arm of the Lord. You can think of the arm of the Lord, the strength. That's an image that gets used anytime God has to physically come in and do something. That God shows his power on earth. It's called the arm of the Lord. But it also could be read. Whenever God physically moves. Well we start to think about Jesus. Don't we? In fact he grew up. That means that whatever God is going to do. Is going to start out young. And have to grow old. Not going to be special in any physical way. Not beautiful. He's going to be rejected. Take on the sorrows and griefs of the world. He's going to be despised and not esteemed. You can already see Jesus in the passage, right? I mean, this, this first couple of verses is really about the incarnation. It's about Jesus becoming flesh. 
That the arm of the Lord is physically going to have to come, going to grow up, going to not be this beautiful person, but just be a normal guy. He's going to be despised. This is so amazing because it means that Jesus feels all of our sorrows and all of our grief. There is nothing you can go through in this world that Jesus hasn't tasted for himself. Anxiety. He bled drops of blood knowing his death was coming. Losing someone close. He he lost his father. He lost his friend Lazarus. Jesus knows what it means to weep. Physical pain. Jesus went through pain that none of us will even understand. Betrayed by a friend. Abandoned by those closest to you. Someone out to get you constantly. There is not a pain in this world that Jesus didn't enter into and feel completely in his own body. Why does he do that? Passage moves on. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Listen, Listen to this right here. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why does Jesus come? Why does he enter into our pain? Because he takes our pain and he takes our sin upon himself and he takes the punishment that we deserve. And think about this. 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah uses the word pierced. What do you automatically think of when you hear that? The cross. Pierced hands and feet. A spear that pierced his side. He was crushed. Do we remember him carrying the weight of his cross? That after the beatings that took place, he couldn't even hold on his own. He had to have help. He doesn't deserve it. He's righteous, but he takes on our iniquities. Now this always ends up causing people some problems when they think about this. Because there's some important questions that have to be asked, right? Why can't God just forgive? Why does there have to be bloodshed? In fact, even Christians today are really pushing back against this part of our faith. Why does there have to be blood? Why does there have to be this kind of pain? And if so, why do I deserve that? I've never done anything that deserves the death penalty. Why does it have to be so rough? The answer is that forgiveness is actually never free. Forgiveness always bears a cost. Somebody has to make a payment for it. Pastor Timothy Keller tells tells this sort of fake story to try to help illustrate this. Let's say you go and borrow my minivan. Okay, so we get a shop back and we clean up all the French fries and we get the car seats out of there so you can actually use it. And you take my minivan and you use it for a, a day. But on your way back, you wreck it. Well, how am I going to respond to this? I could rant and yell and scream and cuss. Of course, that doesn't really fix the problem, does it? 
We've still got a wrecked car and maybe a broken relationship that's even more broken if I just chastise you for it. Well, I I can make you pay it, but maybe you can't pay it. That puts us in a bind too, right? Now we've got a broken car and a debt that can't be paid between us. Or I could forgive you. (laughs) Just don't worry about it. But of course, there's a problem there too, right? My car's still broken. I can forgive you, but somebody's got to fix the car. Somebody's got to mend what was broken. And in fact, what is broken is far more than the car. Will we ever have the kind of relationship again where I can trust you? Where you can borrow something else of mine? See, that's the problem. The problem isn't just that we sin and do bad things. The real problem is the relationship problem. What does it say here? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. If God is supposed to be God, and he made us for his purposes, and we reject that, and we go our own way, then our life is forfeit. You may not have done that bad of stuff in your life. But your life was meant to be totally God's. And if you took it as your own, then that is a penalty of death. The wages of that kind of sin, that kind of broken relationship is death. Your life is forfeit because it was supposed to be God's. And he has every right to come and take it back from you. Forgiveness is never free. Payment must be made so that the relationship can be mended. But the problem that we have is we have a debt we can't pay. And we feel that debt all the time in our bodies, right? When we're sore, when we're in pain, we can physically feel the debt that we owe some mornings. But the beauty of the story isn't that we owe all this debt. The beauty of the story is Jesus comes and pays the debt for us. That we are forgiven. And it's not a free forgiveness. Jesus pays the debt, but he fixes the car. He mends the relationship. He has to, because God is righteous. God can't just let sin go unpunished. Then he wouldn't be righteous. But God entered into our pain. He took our pain on. He takes the punishment and mends the relationship. It's an amazing Story of blessing and forgiveness and good news that we celebrate every Easter. And he doesn't do this just getting swept up. The next few verses show us that he does so willingly. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, then there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus willingly goes to the cross. 
He's not, it's not accidental. He's not caught up in some conspiracy out to get him. He goes there. He lets himself get caught. Again and again in the Gospels, it talks about Jesus going to Jerusalem. That he intentionally goes there. He predicts his death. He knows Judas is out to betray him. Time and time again, he could leave. He could run away. He could move to somewhere else and not go anywhere near Jerusalem. But he doesn't. He willingly goes. For it is God's will that Jesus would die. Like a lamb going to the slaughter, not crying out, he stays silent. If you go, as you head towards Easter, make sure you read the Easter story in each of the Gospels. One of the things you find is as Jesus is being, uh, going to trial, they're, they're saying all kinds of things against him that aren't true. All kinds of made-up testimony, contradicting testimony. It's not working well. But instead of defending himself, Jesus is silent. He gives really no answer other than just to say, that's what you say about me. He willingly, like a lamb going to the slaughter, gives up his life for you and for me. Remember the Garden of Eden, or or the, the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is there, and he asks that the cup be taken from him. He's not like a robot that doesn't feel. He feels the pain. He knows what's coming. And still he submits to the Lord. And it's just amazing that he would do that for you and I. In verse 11 and 12, he does this so we live differently. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We are counted righteous because Jesus took our iniquities. So we live differently because we have a portion with him. We are now right with God. Think about this. 700 years before, around 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah looks out and starts to see these things coming. Does he picture Jesus in his head? I don't know. But the fact that Jesus didn't fight back at his testimony, there's an amazing verse in here. Verse 9, it said, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And if you remember the story, Jesus is crucified next to some criminals. And he's buried in a rich man's tomb. Just amazing to think that this passage is written and Jesus falls so in line with what he says. But more amazing to think about the truth behind it. That Jesus takes our iniquities. He takes our transgressions and he makes them right. By paying the payment we never could pay. It's easy to see how Philip could use this text to tell the good news to this Ethiopian eunuch. In fact, if you go on and read the story in Acts 8, you find that the eunuch believed and was baptized. Great symbol of being cleaned of his old life and born anew. And historically we know that the church in Africa started to boom. And a lot of it traced back to this Ethiopian eunuch who went back and built the church. 
Now, a lot of that church was really crushed uh, during the rise of Islam. But for the first 500, 600 years of Christian history, the church in Africa was vibrant. And amazingly, now today, the church in Africa is once again becoming like that. Um, the, the center of the church is the Christian church is no longer the West. It's no longer Europe and the Americas. It's really moved back to the Holy Spirit's action in Africa. And it all comes back from this passage and this eunuch that went back and really changed his culture because of it. The question today is, what will be your response to this good news? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you did bear our iniquities on the cross, that you right the relationships, that you make the payment that we never could so that we could be forgiven. We thank you that we have a portion of your relationship with the Father. Pray that we would live that out and that we would deeply consider it as Easter approaches. In Jesus' name, amen.